0: That's what I want to talk to you about this morning, is um, really how to have the right kind of foundation. You know, as Pastor Gary was mentioning uh, last Wednesday, we were actually starting the book of 1 Peter, and as a, as a foundation to that book, to kind of lay the groundwork of what all that uh, is about, I wanted to look at the life Of Peter, and that's what we're gonna be doing this morning to look at his life, his background, um, the foundation that he had, the foundation that he built upon, the foundation that was really the bedrock of his ministry for his entire life. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, it is a preface to 1 Peter. And so if you aren't able to join us on Wednesday nights, haven't been, haven't been plugging in online, uh, this is an official invitation to you guys to join us <laughs> on Wednesdays, uh, whether you're here in the room with us or online as we study through the book of 1 Peter. But I wanted to start out talking about um, a famous landmark. A lot of you have heard of this landmark. Um, it's called the Tower of Pisa. Most of you know it as the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and I've never seen this tower in person myself, um, but even in pictures, you know, I've always been fascinated by it, especially as a kid, you know, how is that tower standing up? And most of us know what the tower is famous for, right? It, it's, it's not a its tight, it's not a really tall tower, um, it's not the architecture because there's plenty of that in the area to look at. We all know that it's famous for its lean. It's famous because it's leaning over, and it continues to lean over more and more each year. Uh, construction on the Tower of Pisa started in 1173, and that makes it 848 years old this year. And what's interesting is from the time of its construction until now, it continues to lean 1 20th of an inch each year, right? And so scientists and people have looked at that and said, you know, one day that tower is going to fall down, right? It just, it can't lean forever. Eventually, it's going to fall. And the last prediction was 2007, that the tower was going to fall over and collapse. Well, some scientists and engineers happened to be uh, sitting next to the tower right before that and said, you know, we should do something about this, and we'll talk more about that later. But the Tower of Pisa, that word Pisa means marsh or marshy ground or like swampland. So it's not hard to understand why the tower is leaning. It was built on an unstable foundation. Uh, in my own life right now, and I shared this last Wednesday, um, where I've been working on trying to uh, build a back house on my mom's property for, for her retirement and income purposes and whatnot. And it's been a very long process. We're going on like five months now of trying to get this done. And in the process of trying to do this, um, you know, you got to go to the city anytime you're building something. And. The city, before they would even look at our plans, before they would even consider the project, they required of us a soil test, meaning we had to come, uh, have someone come out to the backyard where we wanted to build the back house, and they dug like a 25-foot hole in the ground and pulled out dirt and put it in bags and charged us a lot of money for that. <laughs> like, what's the point of the soils test, right? Well, the same reason that the Tower of Pisa is leaning over, you know, the foundation of a structure is its most important part. That's the part you can't you know, negotiate on. It, you, you have to have a good foundation. And so our, our city, because apparently the, 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 the soil around us you know, can, can shift and stuff, so they always want to test it before you build, required us to do that. Well, you go into Scripture, you'll see that Jesus also taught on the importance of having a solid foundation, specifically building our lives on a solid foundation. In Matthew chapter 7, he told a story about two men who were building homes. And in the story, he said one of these men built their home on the sand. The foundation was sand. The other man built his home on the rock. Now, in this story, you, you, you get the impression that both houses looked great. Both houses had great curb appeal. Both houses would have gotten very high appraisals, you know, but the problem was. Is that eventually great rains came, floods came, winds came and pounded on both houses. And in that story, Jesus says that the one who built his house on the rock, that house didn't collapse. But the house that was built on the unstable foundation, it says in Matthew 7:27, collapsed with a great crash. And so I want to open up in prayer real quick as we look at Peter and who he was and really analyze and come to learn and be encouraged by his foundation, the foundation that he built upon and how that just has such positive effect in our lives building on that same foundation. Father, we thank you, God, so much for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for our church. We thank you, Lord, that there is revival coming, God. Lord, there are so many that are, that are just sensing the same thing from you, God, that you are about to do a work in your people, Lord. And, and God, we are so excited for you to work in and through your people, God, that people would get saved, that lives would be changed, Lord, that this world would be affected for the good and just stop being affected for the evil, And so, Lord, we know as believers, God, that that you are our foundation. And, Lord, we are um, here today to study your word, to learn from the people that that walked with you, that learned from you, Lord, those that, that, that wrote your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, God, to give us your heart and your will for our lives, Lord. And so, God, encourage us today. Bless us today. Speak to us today, God, about this man, Peter, who he was, who he was as he walked with you, who he became, Lord. And really what his writings are all about, God, that we would learn from these things and be encouraged. Lord, we love you so much and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, just quick background on the letter of 1 Peter. Um, this, This letter was written around 60 to 63 A.D., and it was written by Peter, a guy whose name literally means rock, okay, Now, in our modern culture today, when you hear of a person named The Rock, you might think of this particular individual, right? You know, The Rock. Now, um, instead of being the people's champ, it can be said of Peter that he is the people's apostle. Because when you look at his life and all the foibles he made and the, the struggles and the mistakes, you know, and then his victories, so many of us can relate to his life, to relate to him as a believer, him and all his quirks. His name, Peter, actually was given to him by Jesus, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But he was one of the earliest followers of Jesus Christ. His life, his writings, 1 and 2 Peter, they can be summed up this way. If you just took a snapshot of his whole life, you could say this about Peter, that he was a tiny rock who put his his trust in a huge boulder and taught others how to build on a solid foundation. And so read with me 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So that is the one and only verse we're looking at this morning, right, um, as we look at Peter. Because what I want to focus on is who Peter was who Peter became and then what he wrote and how he wrote it. Now as I said earlier Peter the apostle he's the author of first and second Peter and we get that from the very first word of the first verse right. But it's important to point out that his original name his birth name wasn't Peter. His birth name was Simon Now, if you read through the four Gospels, you'll see that he was referred to as Simon some 50 times across the four Gospels. Now, the meaning of his name, Simon, is one who hears, which is a very interesting name because if you study the life of Simon Peter, Simon Peter, you'll see that he often heard everything Jesus said but didn't listen. Now, I don't know if that hits any of you in here, right? It surely hits me, right? There's so many times in my life where I hear the Lord, but I'm not listening to the Lord. Now, many have um, what I believe are incorrect, inaccurate thoughts about who this man Peter was. Some believe that Peter was the first pope, that that's who he was, and if you do a study on that, there is much much to refute that okay i don't believe peter was the first pope some have used peter as the opening lines to jokes you know talking about like all right two men uh, went to a bar and then they died and then when they get to heaven saint peter's standing at the gate right he's always the the opening line to some jokes but none of those types of things are the real peter who was this man peter well in the scriptures we learn that he was a fisherman That was his vocation, his trade, born in a town called Bethsaida, which was on the shores of Galilee. Now, at some point in his life, he moved to a town called Capernaum, which is where Jesus lived for a time also. And if you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel, to take an Israel trip, I highly, highly, highly encourage you to do so. Um, it is eye-opening, it is faith-building in ways you can't even really imagine or describe. I've had the privilege of going to Israel twice in my life, and both times we visited the town of Capernaum. And when you visit the town of Capernaum amongst the ruins of a, of a synagogue and, and in the rest of the town, you can actually see what is believed to be the house of Peter, And so there's a picture of it that we have. You see that little circular structure in the middle of that structure. That is believed to be the house of Peter. Now, they have since built this big old viewing platform over the top of it so you could kind of walk up and gaze down into it. But the reason they believe this is the house of Peter is because of, um, you know, archaeological details I don't have time to get into. But one of them is you'll notice those hexagonal structures around it. That is evidence of like temples or, or some type of enclosures that, that, that the church would always build over holy sites, right? Oh, this is a holy site. We're going to build a church on it, right? This is a holy place. We're going to build a church on it, right? That's what they did all the way through, through the, uh, um, the biblical lands. And so those hexagonal structures are, um, were like church structures that they built upon this place as well as um, other uh, things they've discovered there and stuff. It's, it's believed, and I believe it is, the house of Peter. Peter had a brother named Andrew. His father, the Bible tells us, was either named Jonah, Jonas, or John, depending on the translation that you have. But his Hebrew name was Simon Bar-Jonah. And that simply means in English, Simon, son of Jonah. It was a name that Jesus referred to him by in their ministry. We know that Peter had a wife. We know that he was married. Um, you could read this in Mark chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We also know that Peter had a mother in law who lived with him. Again, you could read about that in Mark chapter 1. And the reason I point out those particular details is these are very difficult details to wrestle with if you believe that Peter was the first pope, because the popes are not supposed to be married. And if you believe Peter was the first pope, then you must also believe that the first pope was married, because he was married. He was a leader amongst the 12 disciples if not the leader of the group every time you go through the new testament and you see the list the lists of the disciples the names aren't always in the same order but every single time peter is the first name on the list we see in the book of acts him operating as a leader not only among the disciples, but an early leader of the church. If you read through the book of Acts, the first 12 chapters are really all about Peter's work. He's, he's kind of the main character. Well, Jesus is the main character, but Peter is, a, is the, the main hero of that story, if you will. He was a starter. He was an initiator. He was a leader. This is who Peter was. If you go through the four Gospels, you'll find that there was more written about Peter than any other follower of Jesus. In fact, going through the Gospels, you'll find that the only other person that had more written about them than Peter is Jesus Christ himself. But before Peter was ever Peter the Apostle, Peter the Leader, before he ever reached any of that, he was a disciple. Now, the word disciple <clears throat> excuse me, appears 245 times in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, referencing the 12 early followers of Jesus. And the word disciple simply means student, all right? It means pupil, learner. It it, it refers to someone that has a mentor or a teacher in their life. That's what disciple meant. Many of the early rabbis had disciples, right? Some of the rabbis, depending on how popular they were, had disciples. In modern language, you would call them subscribers, okay? (laughs) And so these are people that would that would follow these rabbis around, listen to their words, take notes, apply everything they said to their lives, really follow and learn from these rabbis. But when Jesus described discipleship, this is how he described what a disciple should be. In Luke chapter 9:23, he said this. Then he said to them all, "If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That was how Jesus described discipleship. Not follow me around and take notes, which nothing wrong with taking notes. But a true disciple of Jesus Christ, a true follower of Jesus Christ, will deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. Now it's interesting when we look at that and we go, that's who Peter was. But it leads us to the question of of how many do we know today, how many do you know today that truly do that daily, that really truly live that daily? You know, our culture has become and is becoming more and more a culture of entitlement as the years go on, and this doesn't apply to one generation or the other generation. I think across the board, our culture is becoming more and more an entitled culture. We live in a culture where there's the priority of my personal rights, what I want, what I feel, what I need. And the concept of denying oneself, which here it's referring to denying one's personal own, one, one's own needs and wants and desires, right? Denying those things for something else. That concept of de- denying ourselves is mostly unheard of. You know, and if you look across the church, sometimes you could see the concept of, you know, taking up the cross, which means embracing suffering for Jesus and embracing difficulty for Jesus, right? That, that, that sounds like it hurts. I don't want to do that, right? I want to be saved, but I don't want this discipleship stuff that's going to cause me pain. Take up your cross daily? Well, that sounds like religious insanity, right? Are you some type of weird fanatic? And that's why I ask, and it should be a question we always ask ourselves, are we truly disciples of Jesus Christ? And that's exactly where we have to start in a healthy anal- analyzing of our lives, in a healthy just self-reflection as we move forward and walk as believers. Are we truly disciples? I think we don't ever truly experience the excitement of God working through us until we have the experience of God working in us as true disciples of Jesus Christ. True followers who are learning from him and then following his, his, his commands. Truly live in that life where we are truly denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily to follow him. It's a lifelong process of conforming to a will that isn't your own. It's the will of God, right? That's discipleship. Now I know there is many in this room and many watching online and you're like, that's what I'm doing. And praise God, because you are in that place of active and regular discipleship. And that's exactly what it was. That's who Peter was, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, there's tons more about Peter that, that cause us to love him, that causes us to relate to him, right? He was very impulsive, right? I heard long ago a pastor say, yeah, you know, if, if ADHD was exi- existed as a diagnosis back then, Peter had it. He was one of the most hyperactive, impulsive people you'll ever meet, right? You read through scriptures, and he's the guy that, you know, like in the middle of a storm, Jesus, is that you? Yeah, come to me. Whoop, Jumped right out of the boat. Didn't think about it until after, and then he sunk a little bit, right? But, but he was just talking, saying things all the time without thinking, making boastful claims without thinking, right? I will never leave you, Jesus, if everyone else did. And Jesus would have to then correct him on these things. He was the guy that when they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you read the story that he was the one that pulled out a sword and hacked off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, right? And then I've always appreciated how people look at that and they're like, I don't think Peter was aiming for the ear. I think he was aiming for the head and was just a bad aim and missed and just chopped off the ear, right? Um, he was just an impulsive dude. He was very self-confident, very self-confident, which in it isn't in and of itself a bad thing but but if it becomes arrogance it can be again i've already quoted this in matthew 26 peter said to jesus even if everyone falls away because of you i will never fall away he was prideful right he was the one that said we've left everything and followed after you lord where's our reward right <laughs> look what i've done for you jesus Where, where's my reward he was also the one that when Jesus tried to wash the disciples' feet, he's like, oh, no, Lord, no, you're not going to wash my feet. You know, and I think he was kind of putting on a little self-righteous kind of act there. You know, oh, no, I'm, I'm that, that's, you know, I call it reverse pride when people want to put themselves down so much to the point where they're like, oh, I'm so bad Jesus can't, Jesus won't. You know, and it's like, don't tell Jesus what he can and can't do, right? He's God. We all know Peter struggled with uh, legalism, struggled with hypocrisy, right? In Galatians chapter 2, we have written by Paul where there was a time where Peter was sitting with the Gentiles, eating with the Gentiles, right? Having bacon cheeseburgers, loving it. Peter's like, oh, bacon, this is the best thing I've ever had in my life, right? And then the Jews show up and he immediately stands up and he's like, oh, foul bacon, Curse be upon thee, can't eat that, right? He, was, he played the hypocrite, and he got called out for it by Paul. All of these reasons are, are, I think, why we all relate to Peter. At least I do. I relate to him greatly, right? Um, there is so much written about Peter, so many conversations he had with Jesus, so many mistakes, so many failures. He's just so incredibly human, and that's why we can relate to him. But he wasn't just a, a just a failure at everything, you know. He had a really wonderful heart that 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 tried. He was tender-hearted, you know. You read in the Trans Transfiguration, Jesus uh, was transfigured on the mountain, and Moses and Elijah appeared with him, and Peter going, oh, oh, "How do I honor these guys?" Uh, uh, "Hey, let's build houses for them, right?" He just, like, "How do I take care?" He he had a heart for people, and you do see that through his letters that he writes here in First and Second Peter. What I do find interesting is that Jesus spoke to Peter more than any of the other disciples. At least in what we have recorded, right? We don't have every word spoken, but what we have recorded, Jesus spoke to Peter more than any other disciples. And I think that is important because it's all those conversations. It's all those lessons that Peter writes about in 1st and 2nd Peter. It's all that he learned from Jesus. Every up, every down, every encouragement, every rebuke, it's all seen in the letters that Peter writes. And so, tragically, he died around 67 or 68 AD. Many of you know the story. He was crucified in Rome for his belief. But it says, uh, according to tradition, that because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord, he asked that his cross would be flipped upside down, and he was crucified on the cross upside down. Um, What many of you may not know is, and I just learned this when I was studying this last week, is that according to to tradition, um, it's also believed that his wife died the same way at the same time he did. And it's in uh, the writings of one of the early church fathers that Peter actually saw his wife dying and was encouraging her, don't recant the Lord right before he was killed as well. But interesting note about um, Peter's death And this gives us more insight into the type of man he was. He lived knowing that he wouldn't die until he was an old man. Because after the resurrection in John chapter 21, verse 18, and we're going to look at that more in a little bit too. After Jesus restored Peter, he told Peter in John chapter 21, verse 18, that when you grow old... Someone else is going to tie, tie your hand and carry you where you don't want to go. And then John gives commentary right in the next verse after that, saying Jesus was predicting how Peter would die, right? And we know that he was tied to the cross. He was crucified. Um, and so Peter was told by Jesus right after the resurrection that when you're an old man, you're, you're, you're going to be killed, right? I think what Peter hung on to in the moment is, oh, when I'm an old man when I'm an old man, right? So he went about his life living in faith, really doing some amazingly bold things. In Acts chapter 12, we read that he got arrested for preaching the gospel, and he was in a prison chained between two Roman guards, right? Now, Herod, it says, had just killed James, the brother of John, one of the other disciples, killed him with the sword, executed him, right? And then was going to execute uh, Peter because when Herod killed John, or James, he, um, he saw how it made all the Jewish leadership happy. So he goes, oh, I'm going to kill Peter too. That's, that's going to ingratiate me to them and everything's going to be good. But when you read in Acts 12, you see that instead of Peter worried, Instead of Peter concerned, it tells us that he was sleeping between the soldiers, sleeping between the soldiers. Now, how do you sleep peacefully when you know that you're going to be executed in, in a mere hourly, mere time of hours? How do, you, how do you sleep peacefully? They're about to cut my head off, kill me, stab me, whatever it is they did with the sword, likely a beheading. How do you sleep peacefully? Well, I believe it's because Peter knew it wasn't going to happen. He's like, Jesus told me that I will die when I'm an old man. So I don't care what Herod thinks he's going to do. I don't care what his plans are. Jesus said I wasn't going to die die until I was an old man. So boop, snooze button. He's good. He's at peace. That was the faith and the trust and the promises of Christ that Peter lived in. This is who Peter was. But verse 1 also tells us who he became. He opens his letter there and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He became an apostle. Peter wasn't always an apostle. And if you look at his life, you'll see there was kind of three big stages in his life. First, his name was changed. I touched on that a little bit earlier, but I'll touch on it again later. We also see that his status was changed, and then ultimately we see that he had a major, major change in his heart. Now, you go through Scripture, you'll find that it's not uncommon for God to change someone's name, right? You go into the Old Testament in Genesis, you see that there was a man named Abram, and then God changed his name to Abraham. Why? Because the new name represented what he was going to become. His new name represented that he was going to become the father to many nations, and so God changed his name. In the Gospels, we see Jesus changed the names of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He kind of renames them to James and John, the sons of thunder. Right? Why? They had a temper, right? They were the kind of people that are like, oh, they don't, they don't want to hear the gospel there. Drop a nuke on them. Kill them all. And Jesus is like, well, slow down there, bro. Like you don't need to, you know, go to the extreme. So, sons of thunder, he renamed them. But Jesus also changed the name of Simon to Peter, as I mentioned earlier. We pick up that story in John chapter 1, verses 40-42. through 42. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated, the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, Cephas is the Aramaic equivalent of the Greek word, the Greek name Peter, right? Peter in Greek, Cephas in Aramaic. Now, the word Peter means petros. That, that's the word in the Greek, and the definition means stone or rock, But the interesting thing there I want you to to notice is that in in John 1, it said that Jesus saw him. That phrase, saw him, doesn't mean just, you know, he saw him with his eyeball. What that phrase means is that Jesus looked intently upon him, gazed upon him, considered him while he was looking. The idea there is that when Jesus saw Peter, he didn't just see a guy stand there. He saw into Peter. He saw Peter's heart. He saw Peter's past, his present, his future. He saw what Peter would become. And so he goes, look, Simon, that's, what, that's the name that describes you in your natural state. That, that describes your condition now. But wait, when I get involved in your life, when you start to follow me, you will become Peter. Simon is who you are naturally. Peter is who you will become supernaturally through the power of God. And that's neat because Jesus sees us clearly in all ways. But he doesn't just see us as what we are. He sees us by what we can be. He sees our hope. He sees our potential because he is our hope. He is our potential. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. God can see our heart. And when he looked at Peter and saw Peter's heart, he saw everything about Peter. Everything about Peter. All the failures. All the mistakes. All the weaknesses. But he also saw who Peter could be supernaturally. He saw what Peter would become. And so he said, look, you're Simon now, but I'm changing your name to Peter Now, what's really interesting about his name change is even after Jesus changed his name, you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus often referred to him as his old name, right? Jesus, why would you change his name and then call him by his old name? I don't understand. Well, for one, I believe there's a historical link to it, right? People that Simon grew up with would know him by Simon. But I think the bigger reason was you'll notice that those times that Jesus calls Peter Simon, are the times when Peter was acting like Simon. When Peter was acting like his old self, he was behaving according to his old nature. You might remember the story when Peter swore, I will never deny you, Jesus. Never deny you. And then he denied Jesus three times, right? After the resurrection, we read Jesus approaching him. After Peter effectively lied to Jesus, boasted, proudfully, arrogantly boasted on how he would just be the one who would never deny. And Jesus approaches him in Luke 21 and goes, Simon, do you love me? And he asked him that question three times. In Luke chapter 22, Peter's bragging, I'm going to be the only one faithful to Jesus, right? Everyone else is going to deny you, but not me. I'm, I'm Peter. I'm the rock. And Jesus goes, Simon, Simon. Stop bragging. Stop acting like your old self. Don't you even know that? Satan has been asking for you because he knows that your your pride and your arrogance is not going to stand. In John's gospel, we read John writing, who was a friend of Peter, often used both names. He called him Simon Peter, right? Simon Peter through the gospel of John. But what we see is that these names, I believe, represent two sides of Peter's character. They represent the old nature They represent the new nature. What it represents is sometimes this man listened to Jesus. Sometimes this man didn't. Sometimes this man was as firm and stable as a rock. Sometimes he was as weak as sand. He struggled, like all of us. And we all have the same struggle. We all have our struggles even after Jesus changes us, gives us a new heart, effectively gives us a new name, we still struggle. But Jesus saw what he could become, and Jesus still sees what you can become. Don't lose heart. So then we get to his status change. His name change led to his status change. He went from being a disciple, a student, to an apostle. Now, the word apostle in Scripture simply means someone who is sent out, someone who is commissioned to go, right, The word was often used in classical Greek to describe um, an an expedition of ships that were sent out to represent their king, represent the kingdom, right? They were sent out as missionaries. And so this word apostle, its modern meaning typically means someone sent out on a mission, right? Now this change in in the disciples' lives from disciples to apostles, we see in Matthew chapter 10, it says this. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority. This is the commission. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. And then it says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter. This is the first time in Scripture that the disciples are called apostles, right? Now, the word apostle, it's used uh, in two main ways in Scripture. The first way and the most often way it is used has a very, very, very strict sense. It refers to the original 12 apostles, all right? That's the, word, the way this word is most often used. These are the original, handpicked by Jesus, personally commissioned by Jesus' followers, personally commissioned to go out on mission. They saw Jesus. They heard Jesus. They followed Jesus. They, they performed some miracles. I mean, really amazing, That use of the word apostle in Scripture refers to those guys, and there's no more of those guys. So there are no more apostles in that sense. But there's a secondary sense that this word is used in Scripture, and it referred to people like Barnabas. In Acts chapter 14, 14, Barnabas is called an apostle. In 1 Thessalonians 2 and 7, Silas and Timothy are called apostles. All right? So this secondary sense refers to people who were sent out as representatives of Jesus. They weren't the original followers, but they were also called apostles in the New Testament. And that's why today I believe that the word is commonly used as missionary. When someone is sent out in a missionary, as a missionary, I believe they're being sent out to do, to perform apostolic work. I know there's other traditions and faith traditions that Use the term differently. I, I don't think those are supported scripturally, but that this is what I believe and what Hosanna believes about the word apostle. But important in Peter's life, we see three important growth stages in his life that we also see in our lives as believers. First, it starts with a true conversion, right? A surrender to Jesus Christ. And then we become disciples, we become students. We go from just being saved to Jesus, I want to learn from you. And so we learn to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily. And then, as we grow and learn, we reach a stage where we're sent out as representatives of Christ to go into the world and to preach the gospel. Now, a missionary doesn't just mean someone sent out to go to another country. When you go to work as a Christian, you're a missionary because you were there to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and how you work, how you live, and your words. When you go to visit your family for a holiday thing, and there are people there that aren't Christians, you are going out as a missionary, as a representative of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, there's official like missionary, right? Commissioned by the church. We're going to send you over to this country to do a work there. But although Peter was personally commissioned by Jesus, to do ministry, to go out and share the gospel, he also failed Jesus. And this is where we see Peter's heart change. I mentioned earlier, and we all know the story, that in the, during the crucifixion of Jesus, Peter, the one that said, I will never deny you, denied Jesus three times, right? I never knew the man. I don't know who he is. Nope, not me. I'm not one of his followers. And so after his denials, he goes away in shame. He's thinking, I failed Jesus. I let down the one I love. And I said I would never do it, and I did it. But after the resurrection of Christ in John 21, the Lord comes to him and commissions him again. He goes to him on the beach, and it's interesting. He goes, Simon, do you love me? And he goes, Lord, I do. And he asked him this question three times. Now, it's interesting, you get into the original language of these questions. Greek has different words for love. Like, we have one word for love, right? We use the same English word to describe the love we have for our spouse and the love we have for pizza. Well, we would all agree it's a different type of love, right? Hopefully, we would all agree it's a different type of love. But in Greek, there's a different word for I love pizza And I love my spouse. One of the words that we see in Scripture that is often used to describe the love that God has for us is the Greek word agape. It describes a a charity, a charitable love. The kind of love that has no condition, right? The kind of love that doesn't say, you know, I'll love you if you do this. That's not agape love. Agape love is I love you because I choose to. It doesn't matter what you do. And so when Jesus asked Simon the first time, Simon... Do you love me without conditions? Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you, but he uses a different word for love. It's a word phileo. That word describes the type of love we would have for like our brothers, our friends. It can be, it can be described as I like you a lot. I'm fond of you. <laughs> so Jesus goes, Simon, you know? And Simon he was like, Oh, I think he winced a little, right? Do you love me like you brag to everybody? Do you love me without condition? Are you the number one, you know, lover of Jesus in in every way? And he goes, Lord, you know that I like you a lot. And what Jesus didn't do is go, oh, failed, boom, lightning strike, you're done. What he did is he goes, okay, feed my lambs. And then it says he asked him a second time, Jesus, or Peter, Simon, (laughs) so many names. Simon, do you love me without condition? Do you agape me? And Simon goes, Lord, you you know that I like you a lot. And he goes, okay, tend my sheep. And then it says he asked him a third time, and it says Simon was grieved. He was grieved, like, oh, (laughs) the third time, you know. I'm trying to be honest here. The third time he asked, but this time Jesus says, okay, okay, Simon, do you like me a lot? Do you phileo me? And Peter goes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I do. I like you a lot. And then Jesus says, okay, then feed my sheep. Such gracious words from the lips of Jesus to not just a fallen believer, but a fallen leader, right? What he effectively did is he goes, Peter, just be honest with me. Don't try and pretend you're somebody you're not. Don't try and boast about things you know you're not going to do. Just be honest with me. Be honest with me with where you're at. Be honest with me with your weakness. Just be honest. I can meet you there because I see the potential, and I know the work I'm going to do in your life, but be honest with me. And then he entrusts Peter with the most precious thing he has, the flock that he died for. I'm entrusting it to you, Peter. I told this story wednesday i read this in a book once there was a um um, a pilot a test pilot who would uh, test fly planes and fighter jets and stuff and he had this mechanic and the mechanics job was to you know take care of the plane as well as fuel it put fuel in the plane for his test runs and so he filled up the plane the pilot takes the plane out and immediately the engine's sputtering and failing and and the pilot almost dies but he's really good right he's a test pilot so he manages to land the plane well, over the course of all this stuff, the mechanic's watching in horror as, as the pilot that, that he services is, oh, my gosh, is he going to die? Is he going to live? And the mechanic realizes, oh, no, I put the wrong type of fuel in the plane. And that's why the engine is sputtering and everything's falling apart. And he's like, oh. I hope he doesn't die, because if he dies, it'll be my fault. But even if he lives, I'm fired, right? I'm, my game over for me. He's a, I'm never going to work in this industry again, right? Word's going to get out. I put the wrong fuel in the plane. Well, the pilot lands, gets out of the plane, approaches the mechanic, puts his arm around him. And this is all he says to him. Well, so that you know that I know you will never make that mistake again, I want you to feel, uh, fuel up my plane tomorrow, and just walked away. Now, do you think that mechanic ever made that mistake again? <laughs> Likely not. He didn't say, you idiot, you screwed up. You, oh my gosh, you're such a whole, he just said, you made a mistake, but I'm going to entrust you with something very, very important. That's what Jesus did with Peter. I believe that's when Peter's heart changed. When when he had this you know name change, it led to his status change, and now just his heart completely changed. God, you believe in me more than I could believe in myself. Who does that? God does that. I'm not only making you a fisher of men, but a shepherd of sheep. Please take care of them. I'm entrusting them to you. And so instead of rebuking Peter, instead of calling him a letdown, instead of you got issues, instead of saying, Look, Peter, I can forgive you, you can be saved. Peter, you can even be a disciple, you can be a student of mine, but you will never again be an apostle. Instead of that, he restores him, he reaffirms him, him, he entrusts him. And I believe Peter's heart changed radically. And we see that because you go on to see in the day of Pentecost, Peter Peter preaches the gospel. Three thousand are saved. We see Peter being led to approach Cornelius and and, and having the opportunity to lead the first Gentile to saving faith. We see Peter going all over the place to preach the gospel, and then we have these letters from him. Why wouldn't we want to learn from Peter? When we mess up, Jesus can restore us. We can go from Simon to Simon Peter to Peter the apostle. We can go from our old way to being a disciple on to being a commissioned, sent-out representative to represent the king. And even when we mess up in any one of those steps, Jesus can still say, let me restore you. Let me recommission you. Let's get back to work. We can go from failure to faithful. We can go from sand to rock. That is what Peter became, the rock. And so the last part of the first verse there, he says he was writing to the chosen, living as exiles, dispersed in all these different places. And those lands don't exist today. Right. If you look at a map of where they once were, you'll find out that it's present-day Turkey. The country of Turkey is where these lands are. But at the time, there were believers that had been scattered out in these places, both Gentiles and Jews, that were gathering together and starting to form churches and starting to form little fellowships to, to, to study the, the letters they were getting and to grow in their faith. And so Peter is writing to these newly formed fellowships, these newly formed churches. That led me to go, when's the first time the word church is used in the New Testament? And it's interesting. The first time Jesus uses the word church, he uses it in Matthew 16 when he was talking to, guess who? Peter. They were at Caesarea Philippi and Jesus asked him, hey, Peter, who do men say that I am? Who who do men say that I am? And he's like, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Jeremiah. Some say that you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus goes, okay, that's fine. Who do you say I am? And we read in Matthew 16, verse 17, Peter's great confession. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then in Matthew 16, verse 17, we have Jesus' response. It says, Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. I, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, what did Jesus mean there? Because some look at that verse, and they go, see right there, it says that, that Jesus built his church on Peter. That, that's, that's the church, right? The church was built on Peter. That's why he was the first pope, and da-da-da-da-da, and so on and so forth problem is in the language there because when you say when you see what jesus said to him he goes look simon flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you but my father in heaven and so now i also say to you that you are right earlier he said you will be this is after his 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 miracles and his ministry and stuff and right here he's going look peter what's your confession who am i He says, I say to you that you will be Peter. Now, that word Peter, I said earlier, is Petros. It means a shifting, rolling, insecure piece of rock. We might use the words gravel today, right? Or a pebble. And he goes, so I say to you that you are Peter. You are pebble. It still means rock. It still means stone. But it's a small, unstable, shifting piece of rock. And he goes, and on this rock different word it's Petra the word Petra means a solid large massive immovable stone it's two different words he doesn't say you are pebble and on this pebble I'm going to build my church he says you are pebble rock but on this giant unmovable stone I will build my church what was the giant unmovable stone Simon you are Petros and on this Petra I will build my church I believe that giant, unmovable stone was not the church being built on Peter. It was the church being built built on Peter's confession, what Peter said. Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. On that confession, on that truth, on that solid, immovable foundation, I will build my church, and it will last this is the foundation that the church is built on. That Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the Christ. That he is the Savior of the entire world. That's the foundation the church is built on. That's the foundation Hosanna built on. That's the foundation every single one of our lives should be built on. Back before Calvary Chapels even existed, Chuck Smith Pastor Chuck Smith was a part of, a, of another denomination that was very strict on what they taught and when they taught it, right? They had this calendar of 52 weeks. You have to teach these things in 52 weeks and then we give you a new calendar for the next year. It was very controlled. He was told how things were to be done. The concept was that the church would grow based upon the programs we do and the, and the different things that we put in place. And it didn't set well with Pastor Chuck Smith. And so the Lord spoke to him about the church being built on Jesus and nothing but Jesus and simply the truth of who Jesus is. Nothing else, nothing less. And so he split away, started this little tiny church called Calvary Chapel, and just started teaching and preaching Jesus. The author, the pioneer, the finisher of our faith. That foundation is what Calvary Chapels grew out of and grew all over the world. Well, Pastor Gary, he joined that church, got, got discipled there, learned under Chuck Smith, was, was, was taught by Pastor Chuck Smith, went to pastor school there, and Hosanna grew out of that. Now, Pastor Gary didn't build on Chuck Smith's foundation. He was taught to build on the only foundation that stands, Jesus Christ, and that's what Hosanna has been all about for years, preaching and teaching Jesus and then as we move forward, I've been discipled under Pastor Gary. I've learned under Pastor Gary. And as Pastor Gary mentioned earlier, as he moves towards retirement, he's not there yet, but as he moves towards it, I won't be building on his foundation. I will also be building on the solid, immovable truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation that, that this church was built on, that's the foundation that this church will always be built on. And until Jesus comes back to take us all home, that is the only foundation every single believer should build their life upon. Amen. So what does this have to do with Peter's letter? <laughs> well, one of the great themes of 1 Peter is suffering. He brings it up 15 times in this letter. Suffering in different ways. And he's going to teach us about suffering in the will of God based on the truth of who Jesus is as our foundation. He's going to teach us how to live victoriously in the midst of a hostile culture without getting bitter and upset, kind of important in our day. He's going to teach us how to live now, how to live today while we're waiting for Christ to return. We're going to learn about God's foreknowledge, God's election. We're going to learn about how God chose you, the believer, before time began. Peter's going to teach us about our inheritance, about good behavior, about holiness, how the word of God causes us to grow and mature. He's going to teach us about defending our faith. He's going to be talking about marriage relationships, our responsibility to human government, and so much more. That's why on Wednesdays I'm excited to get into these letters, and I, and I hope you join us there, you know. But, but it all starts. It all begins with a good foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so I wanna close on the final back half of the Tower of Pisa story, right? It was supposed to fall down in 2007. And like I said, there were some engineers there who were like, oh, we should do something about this. And so they got involved, and what they did is they strengthened the tower and they stood it back up 18 inches. Why they didn't go straight up, I don't know. Probably because it wouldn't have been a tourist attraction anymore, maybe. I don't know, it's purely speculative. But they pushed it back up 18 inches, right? But still, they agree that the tower will eventually fall. The new prediction is that it's going to fall down in the year 2300, right, is when it will finally crash to the ground um, as long as there's no outside influence, right? They said if an earthquake comes along or a storm comes through, the tower could fall down sooner. And that's the thing about earthquakes and storms, right? We never really know when they're going to come. You never know when it's going to strike, And Jesus said that one house was built on the rock and one was built on the sand. And when the storms came, and they surely will, the one with the bad foundation fell. We never know when the storms of life are gonna come through. We never know when the the earthquakes of life are gonna come through. So all of us need to make the decision to build our life on the solid rock, to build our life on the sure foundation. To build our life on Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you, God, so much. Lord, your word is a just unlimited mine of riches and in, in wisdom for our lives. And Lord, I thank you that we have the lives of, of your disciples and in others, Lord. As examples to us. Examples of what to do. Examples of what not to do. But Lord, I'm so thankful you included all these stories of these people that, that, that endeavored to follow you, God, because we see how they did it, why they did it. We see what, what helped them be successful in that, and we also see what caused them to, to, to struggle and fall, Lord. And God, may we take these lessons into our life to learn these things and apply these things, Lord, that we would learn from the wisdom of those that went before us. God, we know, we believe that the surest foundation of all is you. That if our life is built on you, following you, obeying you, doing what you call us to do, Lord, if our life is built on that, we will not fall when the storms come. But Lord, so often we, for whatever reason, choose to, to introduce unstable things into the foundation of our lives, Lord, and God, we, we repent of that. God, as disciples, we want to keep learning and keep growing. That we would then be able to, to be those commissioned workers sent out to represent you rightly, God. And Lord, we can't represent you when we're living in sin, and so God, we repent of our sin. But God, like Peter, we have our ups, we have our downs, Lord. And I pray, God, that like Peter, we would know that even in our failures, you would sit down and you may call us by the name that we're acting like. Our old nature, Lord, but you do it in in a care and a concern to just point out to us that you know, that we know, that you know. And Lord, you just want us to be honest with you, with who we are and our great need for you, Lord. And I confess that there are times when I love you much less than I profess to and Lord I want to be honest with you that I want to love you more and I ask your Holy Spirit to move in my life and I, and I share that prayer Lord with, with every child of God here that is listening and seeing this video and hearing this message that God we want to love you more we want to serve you more And we ask, God, we submit ourselves to you in just the honesty of who we are. We know we are sinners. We know we mess up. We know we stumble, God. And yet, Lord, we ask for grace. We ask for mercy. We submit ourselves to you as our Father. And God, we know that you clean us up. We know that you work in our hearts. We know that you restore and recommission and do all that, God, and we thank you for it. That we would go forth in this world identifying with you and what you've done that I would be able to move forward and go, no, my, my name isn't the old name. That, that I, am, I am Nathan, a child of God, pastor, called to represent you. And whatever it is in all of our lives, we would fill in those blanks. That I, we are a child of God called to represent you in whatever we do. That we are all missionaries to go out into this world to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Lord, let us never stop learning and growing and maturing. We love you so much. We thank you for your love into our lives. Use us. Use our church. Use the church and the world around us, God. We pray for revival. We pray, God, for a mighty work of your Holy Spirit to just flood through your church and your people, God. That those that don't know you, that stand for wickedness and evil, would be changed. Their hearts would be changed. Their lives, their destiny, their names, all that would be changed for the good, for the glory of God. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Let's worship.